The United States Border Patrol has exciting and rewarding career opportunities with the nation's largest law enforcement organization. Earn great pay with outstanding federal benefits and up to $20,000 in recruitment incentives. Learn more online at cbp.gov slash careers slash USBP. Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money all in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters, and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer, so no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since we discovered Spotify for Podcasters, we feel like having options like video podcasts and Q&A lets us be more creative on another level. I highly recommend you give it a try. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome into The Verge, a show which covers the Baltimore Orioles minor leagues. The Verge is part of BSL Radio. Baltimore Sports and Life is dedicated to analysis and discussion on the Orioles, Baltimore Ravens, and the University of Maryland. The site has a team of writers providing coverage of those teams and houses live streaming content weekly. Join the conversations at the message board, like BSL on Facebook, and follow BSL on Twitter. Twitter. Welcome to On the Verge. This is Zach Spedden, joined as always by Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, my two co-hosts. And as always, we are brought to you by Mercer Floor and Home Carpet One. Uh, Mercer is a third-generation family business that was established in 1959 and is located on Main Street in beautiful, historic downtown Westminster, Maryland of Carroll County. For all of your flooring needs, think Mercer. Uh, On this episode of The Verge, we're going to get into um, the best of the rest, which is a follow-up to last week's show where we looked at the top 30 prospects in the Orioles farm system. Uh, between the three of us, we all named players who were ultimately not included in the top 30 on our personal list. So we're going to use this show to discuss those players as well as some others that we think um, are either should be on the radar for uh, when we update the list in July or have been on the top 30s in the past but have slipped off for various reasons this time around. Um, in addition, we're also going to start off with the big news of the week so far from the Orioles with this Tuesday signing of shortstop Freddie Galvis. Um, if you listen to our show about a month or so ago after Jose Iglesias was traded, we all treated, speculated that Galvis, uh, the veteran who spent last season with the Cincinnati Reds, could be a fit for the Orioles um, to p- play shortstop every day next year, and that will indeed be the case. Uh, he signed a contract that's reportedly worth $1.5 million dollars with a $250,000 bonus if he is traded. To make room for him on their 40-man roster, the Orioles uh, designated first baseman outfielder Chris Shaw for assignment. Um, Nick wrote about the Galvis signing last night on BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. Uh, I would encourage you to read that piece. It's a really good overview of Galvis's career and uh, how he could help the Orioles next year. But I'm also going to have Nick talk about it now on the show here. So, Nick, just... Your general impression of uh, the Galvis signing and how he can help the Orioles replace Iglesias uh, in 2021. Yeah, I mean, we called it. Like you said, he was all on our list. Um, it just seemed like the perfect fit as far as like financially, what kind of contract he was going to get. Looking at some of the other free agents, um, 
you know, I think maybe some fans thought Angelton Simmons could be a possibility, but you know, he just got ten and a half million dollars from was it Minnesota last night. So clearly, out of the Orioles' price range. But I mean, the Orioles really just placed the one defensive stalwart with another. I think with Freddie Galvis, a uh, million and a half dollars. I'm not worried about what is he going to bring back in a trade next year. I don't. I don't care about that right now. It's a cheap deal. He's a perfect bridge to maybe a guy like a Taron Vavra. Um, that's what I figured. Probably the next guy to come up, Gunnar Henderson, Michael Hernandez. These are all extremely young guys, many years away. But you know, Gallus is a guy who's going to be you know a below average league hitter. Uh, you know, hit about two twenty to two forty, get on base maybe at a three hundred clip. Uh, but you know, we saw a lot of improvements last year uh, with the walk rate. Uh, he nearly doubled his walk rate, uh, cut his strikeout rate uh, significantly, down to under twenty percent last year. And I made this comment on the board later on after I was doing a little bit more, little bit more research. And the numbers that I really like <clears throat> were things that he swung at a lot less pitches last year. Um, he, but his contact numbers were up, and he had a really low BABIP, so maybe he was a little unlucky. Uh, so when, you, when you're talking about his chase rate and swing at the first pitch rate, we're about 10% below league average. Uh, that's a pretty good adjustment for him, and I think that's something that he can take with him in 2021 with the Orioles. Uh, we know the glove is good. The defensive numbers weren't very good to him last year, but uh, Angel, we saw, speaking of Angelson Simmons, we saw those numbers kind of disappear for him last year as well. So maybe it's just a weird year. That's what I'm going to chalk it up to. The guy's been one of the top defensive shortstops in baseball the last few years. Uh, he went two straight years of playing 162 games. He's durable. Uh, he's only missed a handful of games over the last five years. Uh, this is a guy that the Orioles are going to be able to plug in every day. And like he said today when he was talking to reporters, uh, he wants to play shortstop every single day. And he's a guy that's going to give you probably 20-plus home runs a year, especially hitting at Camden Yards. So I think it's a great signing considering the considering the situation the Orioles are in right now. Yeah, I love this signing for all the reasons we talked about six weeks ago. They all remain the same. But, I mean, he's a guy that for $1.5 million, I think him, Andretland Simmons, Jose Iglesias are all going to be – pretty similar by the end of 2021 at least that's my guess great defense like nick said the metrics they dropped off but it's it was such short sample size especially with defense i feel like you got to throw that out a little bit at least and it seems like he's still improving a little bit at the plate so what's not to like it's a short short term thing for cheap money you plug him in there and you wait for the guys to show up you know, one thing that jumped out at me about Galvis, and it was something that, you know, although I followed his career, I was really not aware that this is a guy that's generally had some sneaky power. You know, you generally regard him as a glove first shortstop, which is really what he is. But you're also talking about someone that has had multiple seasons of, you know, hitting 20 homers or right around there. Um, he actually just hit 23 back in 2019 between the uh, Blue Jays and Reds. And here's one thing that I thought think is interesting when you consider him coming to Camden Yards. Um, in his career, he has 95 home runs. He's a switch hitter. Um, of those 95 home runs, 74 of them have come when he's batting from the left side. So you have to think that's going to play well at Camden Yards. So although I don't know, you know, the upside offensively with Iglesias in terms of the overall hit tool might be a little bit higher even if I think that what Iglesias did last year is a complete outlier. Um, Galvis definitely has a little bit of power that he brings into this lineup. And if you're looking at a shortstop who could potentially hit 20 to 25 home runs and give you good defense, I think that's a win for the Orioles, even if he only hits 230. 
Yeah, Jonathan VR with better defense, perhaps. Maybe not as good offensively, obviously, but it's just a signing that made so much sense that it. I guess it just had to happen. It was destiny. Yeah, and I, I liked what he said today. Uh, you saw the reports on his Zoom call he had with the beat reporters about how he also just loves working with those young guys and teaching them the, the ways of baseball. So I like that when you're talking about a veteran. Uh, and for me, like if he hit, he hit 13 home runs and across 162 games playing at Petco Park a couple years ago, he's getting 20 to 22, 23 at Camden Yards, no doubt. So, uh, And like you said, Jose Iglesias, I, I mean, he's probably going to put up, fall back down to reality next year. Uh, and so I'd rather have the guy who can give me 20 home runs a year and, and Freddie Galvis. I'm, I'm just glad he's here. He's exciting. He's an exciting player to watch. Now, you know, ultimately we are a prospect-focused show. And I do think that there is a prospect angle to Galvis, and it actually has to do with the Orioles pitching. Um, we know that Dean Kramer and Keegan Aiken are probably going to be in the rotation at the start of the year, and that there is a potential for Zach Lothar, Bruce Zimmerman, Alex Wells, maybe Michael Ballman, and a few others to make their debuts at some point during the season. And I'll start with uh, Bob on this one. How much of a confidence booster do you think it is for a young pitcher to have Potentially Galvis at Stewart and a former Gold Glove winner in Yolmer Sanchez at second, knowing that if a ball is hit on the ground up the middle, chances are somebody's going to make a play. It's huge. I mean, these are guys that are dependable. If they're not spectacular, they're at least going to get to the routine plays, and Pat Vileka is going to be sitting his butt on the bench or at first base, which is certainly better for their peace of mind as well. So, yeah, I think it's huge, you know, just – be able to have that confidence. Yeah, let's get a ground ball here. I know my defense has got my back. I just think that slight edge and obviously limiting the amount of outs that someone has to get is an added bonus too. Yeah, you still have questions on the corners. Yeah, who's going to play first base? It's probably going to be Trey Mancini for most of the time, but what's he going to look like? Third base, who's going to be there? Is it Rio Ruiz? And we saw him make error after error last year. I, I don't know what to think about Rio Ruiz anymore. Uh, or is it going to be Bannon, who's again is going to be a rookie? Uh, but just up the middle, and you got Austin Hayes out there in center field. You've got Santander for now at least out in right field with that big arm. So I think it's a pretty good defense that the Orioles are putting together behind this young pitching staff, which will which will help. Yeah, just to circle back uh, real quick before we move on to our next topic, the contract terms that uh, I mentioned earlier, according to MLB trade rumors, they cited John Mioli, the Baltimore Sun as having them, but I know a couple of outlets now have brought up the $1.5 million salary and then the $250,000 bonus that could come into play if Galvis is traded during the season. Um, moving on now to really the big topic of this show, which is the best of the rest. This is a follow-up to last week's show where we counted down our top 30 uh, prospects in the Orioles farm system going into the 2021 season. If you have not listened to that, I encourage you to go back and listen to it as soon as you finish this, even if you feel the need to consume it as if it's a mini-series. Because I know it was a little long by our standards, but we uh, gave a pretty in-depth overview of the 30 players uh, who made our list. And if you listen to that show, you will know that it was a really fun list for us to put together, but at the same time, it was really challenging because the depth of the system has changed and improved so much just in the last six months alone that we had some tough decisions to make, and ultimately some pretty good players got left off the top 30. So we're going to give a chance tonight to talk about them a little bit, 
And in order to do that, I'm going to have Bob explain how this list was compiled, which is that the three of us submitted individual lists. Bob put them into a score, which resulted in our top 30. But he also went a few steps beyond that and basically came up with, what was it, four players, Bob, who also received votes uh, that didn't make yeah. the top 30? Yeah, so we basically have 34, our top 34 in in order from our individual rankings. So how yes. did the rankings come about? How did, how did you put the score into place? Pretty simple. I mean, you guys sent me your stuff, your list, and basically just gave the first-rated person 30 points, second-rated person 29 points, and so on and so forth. 30th-ranked person gets one point and then tallied the totals up, those points, and put them in order, and... Yeah, that's just how it happened, and uh, a bunch of my guys just missed the list, but that's okay. That just shows off the depth of the system that guys that I consider in my top 30 just weren't when we uh, put them all together. So I will actually start off with someone you had on our list, um, or you had on your list, I should say, and that's Tyler Wells, the Rule 5 pick uh, from the Twins back in December, who will be going into camp competing for a spot on the Orioles roster. Yeah, I just, out of the two guys we took in the Rule 5 draft, uh, Tyler Wells and Max Soroller, uh, this guy is the one that's more intriguing to me. I feel like he might have a little bit more upside. Big, tall guy, coming off an injury, kind of like Zach Pop, who we lost. It's kind of like we traded that same version of that guy. A little bit different pitcher, but, you know, I feel like he's got some starter potential, but if nothing else, he could be a big right-handed reliever coming out of the bullpen if he's able to stick uh, on the roster all season and had a little bit of help from some of our listeners and or at least one in particular, Chris. Uh, he really liked Tyler Wells a lot, especially above Max Roller and kind of just pushed me to include him on the bottom 10 or five or so in my list. Yeah, he's an interesting name for me. I think he's a name that I was really excited to watch when spring training rolls around. Um, hopefully the Orioles play a lot of road games since apparently we're not going to be getting very many uh, spring training broadcasts on Masson. But, um, I mean, there's a lot to like about him. He's 6'8", 265 pounds is what he's listed at right now. I mean, that, that can hold up in a starter's role. He's at this point, this two-year mark, removed from Tommy John surgery, which is when you typically see pitchers start to feel like themselves. Uh, so he's going to be well-rested. Uh, he's going to have every opportunity to make this roster, I think. Uh, it's just going to be a matter of, instead of rehabbing from the injury, just getting used to being on the mound again, uh, facing live hitters in a game situation. But, I mean, you look at his numbers in Double A back in 2018, and they were pretty good. I mean, a 1.65 ERA, only one home run allowed. Uh, struck out more than 30% of the batters he faced in 32 innings. Like, those are good numbers. Uh, and if you look at, um, I know we reference Eric Longenhagen over at Fangraphs a lot because he does such great work. Um, and he said, you know, the fastball is an above average pitch, and all of the secondaries are average pitches. Uh, and that was pre surgery. So uh, he's got a lot to work with there. Uh, and then, you know, you see in the interviews that he did right after the Orioles selected him losing 60 pounds a couple years ago, working with LaTroy Hawkins, uh, Hall of Fame vote-getter LaTroy Hawkins. Um, learning from a guy like that, uh, I think that means a lot. It's going to go a long way. So even if he doesn't make it with the Orioles, researching him, learning more about him for these shows, I've actually been a fan of his coming forward. So it'd be interesting to watch him pitch. Yeah, Wells got really close to making my list. He ultimately fell just short just because I don't know what he's going to look like coming off that Tommy John surgery. And we also... Still, I don't know, have a full grasp of how the Orioles are going to handle Rule 5 selections in the Mike Elias era. 
because they sent back two pitchers last year when I expected them to keep at least one. Um, so that factored into my decision a little bit to not include Wells in the top 30. But I agree with both of you. I think there's real upside here. And he's a guy that if he does make the team, I would like to see the Orioles put him in the bullpen. That's kind of where I expect him to be given the circumstances. But if he looks good early on and he looks like he's recovered from Tommy John surgery, maybe it would not be a bad idea later in the year to stretch him out, uh, have him work longer out of the bullpen, give him a couple of spot starts. Yeah, so I, I think there's definitely some real potential for Wells, if he is healthy, to end up giving you a little bit more value than what you see out of a Rule 5 pick who comes into your bullpen because this is someone who has the right mix of pitches and had shown the potential before his injury to maybe be a back-of-the-rotation guy. Um, and if nothing else, maybe a swing man from the right side. So I, I like Wells, and I think that if he is healthy, he could definitely be in the conversation for an opening day roster spot. And you saw a lot of Twins fans, too, after the Rule 5 draft and going back and reading some of their reports uh, going into before his surgery, saying that this is a guy who they figure probably is going to reach the big leagues in 2019, too. So, I mean, he's, he's definitely major league ready. It's just a matter of, like you said, how do the Orioles handle Rule 5 picks? Because they didn't have the rotation that they have this year. They did not have last year. And this was before the pandemic, and they let Brandon Bailey and Michael Rucker go. So it's, that's going to be interesting to see what they do. Yeah, I have a feeling they're only going to keep one of these Rule 5 guys, and my bet is on Wells being the one that sticks around. That that will definitely be something to watch, and we're going to talk about Max Aroller, the other Rule 5 pick, a little bit later on. Um, next on this list by Bob Score is shortstop Daryl Hernaiz, who has been on our top 30 before, and I'll, I'm curious to get Bob's thoughts on this. Um the reason that he's not on the top 30 has nothing to do with him being a worse prospect. It's just because the depth in the system has gotten better. But, Bob, did Hernaiz make your list? He did. He was, uh, I think, bottom five. I think he might have been 26 for me, something like that. Um, yeah, like you said, nothing really changed on his end. We never even got a real chance to see him in the first place. But, you know, we just had some international signings, some drafts, some some trades, just it all piled up. The depth is mounting, and especially not having had a chance to get to see him in action, it's it's hard to move him up or keep him above people that you know a little bit more about. But the upside is there. I think, you know, out of high school, I think he he had a high exit velocity, if I'm remembering correctly, and seemed like he had pretty decent uh, on-base skills in his time in the GCL at the end of 2019. And I think the potential is there. He's a young high school kid and if he can stick up the middle probably more of a second base guy than sticking his shortstop but just more middle infield depth we got plenty of it all of a sudden yeah that was the one guy i wanted in my top 30 he didn't make my top 30 but it was hard to leave him out just because he's one of the guys that we just don't know a whole lot about but he's definitely one of the more intriguing guys uh he's high school pick so still Pretty raw prospect. Uh, we just haven't been able to see him live, but the reports are great coming out of the draft. You know, good hit tool, uh, power, speed, all of that. Um, I think, you know, Aiken, Kramer, uh, Mountcastle, those guys are going to graduate fairly early. So all three, four of these guys that we're talking about now are going to be in our top 30 within a few weeks once the season starts, definitely by our, our next update. But I wouldn't be shocked to see a guy like Hernandez make a big jump uh, after we see him play some games. Hopefully. Uh, you mentioned the walk rate. His own base skills, yeah, were definitely great. I had 17 walks in 29 games. You can't take a whole lot of 
Gulf Coast League stats, but I like the walk strikeout numbers. You know, if you're striking out 60 times in 29 games, I think that's a little bit of a red flag, which he definitely didn't do. But it, there's a lot of mystery there surrounding him. But I'm, I'm excited to watch him play finally next year. The raw skill set with her and I really intrigues me. And like Nick said, I, I really wanted him on my list, and he got close for me. And whenever I have watched video of him, I, I love his plate approach. I love his swing. Um, the problem is, though, that it's at the end of the day, that video is only going to do so much when you have um, a player with such little professional experience and you have guys in front of him on the depth chart that you know a little bit more about. But Hernaiz is a guy that if he is on Delmarva at the beginning of the year or at least makes it there early in the year, I could see that by July he's somewhere in that 25 to 30 range on this list. And it's interesting to see how well-rounded his skill set's going to be. You know, you noted the walk numbers, and that gives me some encouragement that if he's able to maintain that pace and we see the power and the overall hit tool come around a little bit, and then even if he does end up at second base, you can have a pretty fundamentally sound player who, if nothing else, by this time next year, we might be regarding as one of those higher floor prospects who has a lot of projection room and could move up the list a lot more from there. So Hernaiz fell just short for me, but he's a good prospect. One of the I saw videos of him, too, during quarantine, like working out with Trevor Bauer, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, at least maybe the guy got some cuts in against uh, a Cy Young winner last year. <laughs> maybe that paid off a little bit. Hopefully he didn't learn anything else from him. <laughs> and a guy coming out of high school, you know, he's got extra time to really bulk up and add some strength to his core. So, you know, that can't hurt either. So the next player who received votes, and I was the only one who did not uh, put him on the top 30, and I'll explain my rationale shortly, but I want to focus first on Luis Ortiz, left-handed pitcher, um, who was an international signing in 2019, received a $400,000 bonus from the Orioles. MLB Pipeline actually has Ortiz ranked 30th, so you know that at least one outlet um, beyond us is really taking a hard look at him. So, Bob, you had Ortiz on your list. Um, I'm going to pull it up now to see where you had him. You 29. had him in 29th. Yeah. So yeah, uh, think... what made you settle What made you settle on Ortiz in the top 30? Just like you said, um, uh, MLB Pipeline, I think, is who had him in their top 30 at the end there. And just everything you've seen since we signed him for $400,000 just – Seems like he already has some pretty decent velocity for such a young kid. Left-handed arm. Um, has no resemblance to the other Luis Ortiz that we had in our system, which is a, a plus. Um, you know, it's just it's exciting to have an international free agent that is eligible for, for this list. Obviously, we have um, Michael Hernandez and Samuel Basalo, but this was from a year prior, so that initial crop and it seems like they actually got a pretty decent pitching prospect on their hands and he's going to be the only one at least for another year because they didn't really sign any pitchers out of the international class this time around but they did the best that they could I'm assuming yeah I had him 30th I think on my list and just because he's an 18 year old kid and throwing like 95 miles an hour already. Like some reports had him at, and I think he's listed at six, five. I wrote down six, five. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, I feel like it's right. not a typo. Yeah. Six, five, 180 pounds though. So he's going to add a lot of weight there. Um, 
But yeah, if you're an 18 year old 6'5 kid throwing 95 from the left side, it's hard for me to keep him off my list. Uh, that's something that that I really love. Um, you, you watch the few videos out there, you see the curveball potential. Uh, a lot of reports have him marked as like a potential mid rotation arm. Obviously, there's a long way to go there, but he is one of the few, like you mentioned, international pitching prospects we have that are really exciting to watch. Um, so, yeah, I, I think he's he he was hit or miss. I don't know, but the more I watch of like Basalo, I'm kind of glad he made our initial top thirty because when you're like 16 years old hitting bombs and like 240 pounds jacked already, uh, it's hard to leave <laughs> him off the list as well. So, it's just fun to talk about international guys. Yeah. Oh, it, abs- it absolutely is. Um, and I had Ortiz on my list until uh, Basayo and Michael Hernandez were signed by the Orioles. Ortiz was actually going to make my list, and then Hernandez ended up bumping Ortiz off for me. And it came down to Carter Baumler and Ortiz. And where I went with Baumler is that although I know Baumler is going to miss 2021, I feel like the overall prospect profile, we know more about him at this point. Um, and I feel like the the profile with Baumler is a guy that once he's healthy um, should be pretty safe whereas there's still some questions about Ortiz and this is someone right now who's 18 years old we don't know first off when he's going to debut in the U.S. Uh, we're hoping that that's next year but we don't know for sure yet and you know a guy like this could be five years away and he'd still be reaching the major leagues at 23 so it's a long way to go but Ortiz barely missed my list and I fully expect that as soon as someone graduates, which, as Nick said, will be pretty early in the 2021 MLB season, Ortiz will probably be 29th or 30th for me. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, Baumler was higher on my list, too, so I can't fault you there. Yeah, so it was a tough call, and I, I look forward to seeing more of Ortiz, hopefully, in the near future. And the last player to be placed on a personal top 30 was Isaac Matson, who I had 29th. And Matson was one who a year ago was really not on my radar because we were hearing more about Kyle Bradis um, after the trade that sent Dylan Bundy to the Angels. Matson came over in that deal along with Bradis and two other prospects. What drew me to Matson, though, was the fact that you have a right-handed reliever who has shown in the minor leagues that he can handle a high workload. Um, So there's a durability factor that we don't necessarily see with a lot of other relief prospects. He was earning really high marks at summer camp and then down in Sarasota. And I fully believe that the Orioles' bullpen had not been as good as it was last year, that Matson would have been in the major leagues by the beginning of September and probably had a month of major league time under his belt uh, when we made this list. As it was, he fell just short. I like the fact that he has three good pitches that he can throw for strikes. He's got good movement on his fastball. He's constantly put up good strikeout numbers. And the only reason that I really feel like he gets dinged on top 30 lists is because he's not that prototypical right-hander who throws 95 to 97 out of the bullpen. He's going to be resting more in the mid-90s, but I still think that when you look at that mix of pitches and the fact he can handle a little bit of a workload especially for a team that has a lot of young starters, there is some value there. There is some definite upside there. So that's why I went with Matson, although he was low on my list at 29. Um, so actually, yes, 29. So I'll start with you, Bob. Was Matson in consideration for you at all? 
It was definitely a consideration. He's a guy, actually, I ended up <laughs> ranking my 31 through 60 just to see if I could do it. And yeah, I absolutely could. There's plenty of names in this system. He was number 32 for me, so just missed the list. The thing I like about him is he's got a low floor. You know he's going to make his Major League debut and has a good chance of being a pretty big part of the bullpen in 2021. I'm just not so sure how big of his ceiling is. You know, can he be a closer type? I'm not sure, but there's nothing wrong with that. I'm also a little wary after being so high on Cody Carroll. You know, got to back off some of these relief prospects a little bit. But uh, no, I like Matson a lot, and I'm excited to see him uh, play for the Orioles this year. Yeah, I mean, I kind of got Tyler Nevin vibes, how we talked about him on our Top 30 show. You know, it's he's there. He's a good prospect. He's not bad by any means, uh, but, you know, he doesn't have, like you mentioned, that big one loud tool that maybe you're going to gravitate to, uh, which I think is fine. It's okay just to be just a regular, good, average prospect uh, like Matson is. He, he pitched 73 innings in 2019 and finished it off at AAA and was really dominant at AAA. High strikeout numbers across the board. I think he's he was definitely like 31, 32 if I were to extend my list. Um, and he's definitely someone who I think is in contention to making the opening day roster. I think he surprised all of us by being at the, at the team's alternate site last year. Um, and so, but when you're looking at the active roster now, it's I think the question is, does he start the year in the pros or does he start the year in AAA in Norfolk? Because you've got Wells and Soroller, Rule 5 picks. You've got Ashton Godot, who was brought in, uh, who can go multiple innings as well uh then you got lakin salser jorge lopez now tom eshelman like you got all these guys uh, it'll be interesting to see how that bullpen shakes up because you got a really good core already of that bullpen five or six guys who are locks so will matson make the opening day roster or is it going to be wait until this bullpen gets beaten down a little bit or wait until like charmon armstrong and paul fry get traded <laughs> by the trade deadline and we get six new top 30 prospects for them i, I don't know we'll see yeah, that, that's a fair point. I mean, there, there is enough. I think the Orioles have enough depth right now that it's possible that even if Matson does pitch well in spring training, he ends up falling short of the opening day roster, um, particularly if we're looking at 26-man rosters at the start of the year with AAA starting right away. I still think that even if he's not in the major leagues um, early on, I could see him in a scenario like Nick Menson when that bullpen does start to get beat down, which hopefully won't be too early, that Matson would have to be one of the first arms that the Orioles go to. And I still, I still wonder what his, what the reports on Matson would look like if he'd even gotten a week in the major leagues last year. I think it was just your, he put up good numbers. He's had success at AAA, which also factored in my uh, evaluation of him a little bit, even though he doesn't have that much time at AAA. Um, but I still wonder if he had had some major league time last year, if the reports on him would be a little bit higher. Yeah, could have been. And but at the same time, you know, like you said, the bullpen was so good, one of the top bullpens in baseball last year. So that's also a good problem to have as well. Uh, but yeah, Matson, like he was the quiet guy of this group because, like you mentioned, Kyle Bradish made our top thirty. He's the guy that a lot of people are interested in. And then you ha- even have like Zach Peak and Kyle Bernovich or the other two who I think were probably going to start out as starters. But this whole time, Matson was kind of the one guy that was like, yeah, he's definitely going to stick in the bullpen and go from there. Uh, so maybe that's why he kind of flew under the radar a little bit because you know, everybody's looking for that starter who we can put in the bullpen and add two or three miles per hour to his fastball and one inning to work. And Matson wasn't that guy. Uh, but yeah, we, we need to see him on the mound. We haven't seen any of these guys. We've got like nine new players from the Angels that we haven't seen in an Orioles uniform yet. So 
we just we need baseball to start back up again. <laughs> yeah. At the time of the trade, I figured Matson was just like that fourth throw-in piece, and clearly I think that's wrong now, but I don't know. It just seemed like, you know, he's a reliever with not a super high velocity fastball and you got these other three guys, two of which who hadn't even pitched, I think uh Elias just grabbed them cuz they were players that he wanted to draft himself, so he just seemed more of a throw-in, but I'm glad he was thrown in, if that's the case. Yeah, so we'll see what Matson brings uh, to the table next season, along with the other players who were ranked on individual top 30s, but did ultimately not make our final rankings, including Tyler Wells, Daryl Hernaiz, and Luis Ortiz. Um, not every player who, just because a player did not make an individual list, does not mean that they weren't considered seriously by one of us or all three of us. Which is what we're really going to focus on in the last part of the show, which is players that we didn't rank but that we're still kind of intrigued by going into 2021 and that we think uh, could be in the conversation for the top 30 at some point down the road. And each of us have multiple players that we're going to talk about here. I'm going to start off with two that I did consider for my own top 30 but didn't put on there. One of them was A.J. Graffinino, the one of the infielders acquired from the Braves as a player to be named later in the trade that sent Tommy Malone to Atlanta uh, back in August. The consensus on Graffinino is that the glove at both sides of the bag at second base is really good, and that this is someone who could play shortstop at the major league level. The problem is that he struggled with injuries throughout his career, um, and the offensive ceiling, although he has shown some upside, there's still questions about whether or not the bat it's going to be enough for him to reach the majors. I had him below Hernaiz um, in my overall ranking, but I still see Graffinino as kind of a friend's top 30 guy. And in fact, before Garrett Stallings came over uh, in the Jose Iglesias trade, MLB Pipeline actually had Graffinino in the Orioles' top 30. So I'll start with you, Nick. Uh, thoughts on Graffinino? Yeah, like you mentioned, the him initially cracking the top 30 i think he bumped uh kane grenier out of the orioles top 30 on mlb pipelines list at least so i think that tells you what they think about him and maybe it's the bat you know we know grenier has fantastic defense which we'll probably talk about him in a moment but graffinino you know doesn't have any power i don't think he had any home runs in college and he has one in a handful of games in the minor leagues which is fine um i pulled this quote from jj cooper at baseball america he said, Graffinino is a strong defensive shortstop with twitchy athleticism, above-average range, solid hands, and an above-average arm. Um, you know, it, he seems, like you mentioned, he's a high-ceiling defensive guy. And, yeah, he can't hit home runs, but if he can stop a few runs out in the field and be a utility guy off the bench, uh, you know, I think that's going to work. You need a guy like that on your roster, even if you stash him away in AAA. Uh, and he just kind of sits there as an emergency shortstop, kind of like think Mason McCoy, but maybe with a better hit tool. Um, you need that. And at the end of the day, we traded Tommy Malone for him. So if he just gets one at bat and draws a walk, it's that's a win. The Orioles win that trade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like him. I mean, he's got a high defensive upside, and that alone could get him to the major leagues. I mean, I have him at number 36 above other shortstop prospects like uh, Joey Ortiz, Mason McCoy, and Caden Grenier, the biggest disappointment in a long time maybe but uh yeah i think it's all going to come down to the bat if he can ever be like a regular at the major league level but i think he'll definitely at least touch the major leagues with his his glove alone 
So, uh, focusing on Max Soroller for a moment, he was drafted from the Reds in the Rule 5 draft back in December. Um, as many of our listeners have probably heard by now, he is the nephew of Ben McDonald, uh, the former number one overall pick by the Orioles and the current commentator for Masson. The one thing that stood out to me about Soroller was that when the Orioles were talking about him in the aftermath of the draft, they kept talking about really his pitchability. And I'm going to read a quote here uh, from pro scouting director Mike, Mike Snyder. And this was in Pressbox uh, online. For Soroller, we were attracted to the four-pitch mix. It's a good fastball, flashes of power, and he leverages the curveball downhill. Throws a slider for strikes and for chases and can get a lot of awkward swings on a plus splitter. That's a pretty good mix for a guy that's probably going to be in the bullpen at the major league level. Again, though, the question that I had was, what are the odds of a 40-man or a Rule 5 pick sticking in camp this year? And just like with Wells, I had enough doubt in my mind that I thought if I put him on the top 30, I'm probably leaving off someone who might have more long-term value to this organization. Um, so, Bob, did you consider Sorolla at all? Uh, I didn't really consider him. I think, like I said, I think he's one of the of the two, the most likely not to make the team out of spring training. I think he has more of like a, a starter's profile. You know, doesn't have that big fastball that he can rely on if he has to go to the bullpen. He reminds me of like a Brandon Bailey from last season, a guy who you'd love to have at AAA just as like depth for starting starting pitcher, you know. But I just, I don't know. I think he's an intriguing guy, and hopefully he surprises me. Maybe maybe they have inside track on some information, some changes he's made with Ben McDonald being his uncle, and he's going to blow us all away in spring training. But I just, I'm interested to see how he does, but I'm not counting on him making the team. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I didn't consider him in my top 30. Kind of like you guys, I, I'm more intrigued by Tyler Wells for sure. Uh, but you know, maybe I know this isn't going to play a part, but you know, the, the cynic in me a little bit is like Ben McDonald is definitely in somebody's ear saying you're going to keep him on the roster. Uh, and at the end of the day, like he has, he's got Ben McDonald to, to look up to and learn from. So you know, maybe that helps. Uh, but I mean, the numbers are, are decent, but he also only pitched at high A in 2019. And I think if I remember correctly, he was a guy that he wasn't invited to the alternate site and he wasn't at the team's instructional camp either. So that's a long time away as well. While a guy like Tyler Wells hasn't pitched in because of Tommy John surgery, at least he was in double A. Um, so maybe, I don't know how you balance that or how you compare those two things, but Sorolla's a tough one for me. I think it's just a matter of what happens in spring training. See what he looks like on the mound. Hey, hey, I'm ben McDonald. numbers. <laughs> oh, sorry. Oh, I was go just going to say, if, if Ben McDonald threatened me to keep him on the roster, I definitely would. <laughs> So going back to the rollers numbers for a minute at um, high A Daytona in 2019, uh, he pitched primarily as a starter, appearing in 26 games, 20 starts, 117 innings, um, only a 2.2 walk per nine innings, which is impressive. The question, though, I think as Nick said, is what is that time away going to do? And the fact that he's only pitched at high A was also something else that gave me pause. Um, so I... I I think there's definitely some upside here, and there's a potential, as I mentioned with Wells, that maybe if Soroller does make the bullpen at the start of the year, that after a while you look at possibly striking him out. But that's going to be a big leap from high A in the major leagues. For sure. Yeah. And like you mentioned, there's 
there's not that many spots available in this year. It's easy to think that, oh, it's the Orioles. If you're a pitcher with a pulse, you can make this roster. But that's not really the case this year. You got one starter starting job available, and we've heard now for a couple weeks now that the Orioles have major league offers out there for starting pitching help. So you're probably going to see one or two more guys enter the mix as well, and I think it's going to be tough for him to, to make this roster. But got to play the game. Yeah, certainly the discussion on how the rotation, the bullpen, is going to look really could change between now and the end of February, um, once we're hopefully in the spring training a little bit. So um, Nick has a few players that he wanted to bring up as well, and I believe, Nick, you actually wanted to focus on some guys that have been on the top 30 in the past but didn't make this list. Yeah, I had two other pitchers. Well, really all four of these guys were on previous lists, uh, but we did not include them on our list. They've been falling on most lists. I think two of them I did consider for my top 30, but ended up leaving them out. But the other two we could talk about first, Caden Grenier, we brought up earlier, and Blaine Knight. I think these are both guys who were pretty highly regarded coming out of college. Uh, you saw Grenier's glove. The glove is amazing. You know, over the past few years, going to Frederick games, not a lot of hitters really stood out recently when you go to Frederick Key's game. I've always gone for the pitching matchups, uh, but Grenier's glove is certainly always one that makes you stop and, and watch closely. I've seen him do some pretty amazing things out there at shortstop, but he's done. he's been less impressive at, at the plate. Um, he's got a career strikeout rate of north of 30%. And a career 236 hitter so far in the minor leagues. So I can pick about six or seven other shortstops in the system that I would rank ahead of him. Uh, and I really, at this point, is is Grenier a guy that's going to, you know, has he reached his peak? Is this it for Kane Grenier? Is he just going to kind of flame out from here on? Uh, and with Knight, kind of the same thing. Um, you know, he's 6'3", listed at 165 pounds, which I don't know how it's possible to be a professional athlete that tall and that skinny. Uh, but he could throw 96, 97 miles an hour. Uh, he really struggled in Frederick, but then again, we've seen, we saw Alex Wells really struggle in Frederick. We saw Hanafy struggle in Frederick. Wells bounced back. We haven't seen Hanafy yet, so we don't know how to compare that with Blaine Knight, but he was 1-12 in 12 with a 6.13 ERA and a whip of 1.53. I mean, he only struck out 14% of hitters in Frederick. Um, that's pretty rough. You wonder if moving him to the bullpen might help be a fastball slider guy, move up to Bowie. But with these guys, I feel like, like, is there time up or is there any hope for these two guys at this point? Yeah, I mean, not really for me as far as I'm concerned. I mean, love to see him bounce back, but I don't have high hopes. I had Grenier, sorry for the mispronunciation earlier. Uh, don't know where I got Grenier from. Uh, 57, I had him at on my list, and I had Blaine Knight at 54. I'm hoping Knight has just been chugging protein shakes for the past year and a half and uh, adding some velocity to that fastball and, and some bulk to his frame. But, yeah, uh, not much hope for those two. But hopefully they surprise. I had some hope for Grenier when he was drafted because at the time it didn't seem like the Orioles had a lot of prospects in the system like him, which was – um, questions with the bat, obviously, but such a good profile defensively um, up the middle, um, and particularly at shortstop, that I looked at him and thought, if he hits 250, 260 in the minor leagues, he's probably going to make the majors because the glove is so good that you can stick him on the bench and have a really valuable defensive replacement, or when your regular second baseman or shortstop needs a day off, you have this really good defender. Um, 
out there that day. So you're not losing a lot. But the bat, and I think what Nick mentioned in particular with the strikeout rate, um, ha has really been concerning. And the fact is that since Grenier was drafted, the Orioles have added similar types of players that I think are better prospects. I think Mason McCoy at this point has passed Grenier um, as a prospect. I think A.J. Graffinino, who we just talked about, uh, definitely has a higher ceiling in the two. Um, you know, the injuries are a concern, but I think the glove is comparable and the bat shows a little bit more potential. If he's going to turn it around, he's got to cut the strikeout rate. He's got to show a little bit more production with the bat. And then maybe there's room for him with this middle infield depth somewhere, but it's definitely getting a lot harder just because of the numbers of, number of players that the Orioles have brought in since they drafted Grenier. As for Knight, I don't want to see the Orioles give up on him until they move him to the bullpen. And I go back to what we have seen so far under Mike Elias, which it, there is still kind of juries out on whether or not it's working. But we saw Cody Sedlock um, turn in a good 2019 when a lot of people had ridden him off. Brian Gonzalez was a guy that had pitched well in the bullpen before he you know, exhausted his original contract with the Orioles and then signed with the Rockies as a minor league free agent um, earlier this offseason. Uh, he had turned it around the bullpen after struggling as a starter for years. So my hope is that before the Orioles think about giving up on night, which I, I have no reason to believe they're considering doing anytime soon, but I really would like to see Knight move to the bullpen. Um, even if they decide to have him start early on, if they're a month or two into the season and Knight's struggling wherever he's pitching, I would look at moving him to the bullpen before I looked at moving him down a level or moving on from him because you know what the fastball velocity was in college. And if he can just put together one good breaking ball, get command of two pitches, you might have, uh, if nothing else, a maybe a Michael Givens type reliever um, who could be that seventh, eighth inning guy that's really effective against righties. You mentioned Brian Gonzalez, too, and it made me think of another guy who had success doing this, uh, Christian Alvarado, who's unfortunately now with the Oakland A's, but that was my guy, just kind of this average, below average, let's be honest, uh, starter at the high A level, uh, but they moved into the bullpen, and he was phenomenal last year in Bowie as Bowie's closer late down the stretch when they went on that big run, made the playoffs, uh, worked their way to the championship series. Alvarado played a major role in that, and I think he was hitting like 96, 97 miles an hour out of the bullpen, and that was he wasn't close to that as a starter working in, in Frederick. Uh, so, yeah, I think Knight moving him to the bullpen could be a, a jumpstart to his career and kind of the saving grace for his career. I've been saying the same thing about Ofelki Peralta for about three or four years now, so <laughs> let's do it, Elias. Come on. Yeah, hey, maybe 2021 can be the year where we see the uh, a lot of pitchers that have struggled in the minor leagues and starters go to the bullpen and find success. That would certainly be um, a highlight for the season. There's one other name that Nick has in his notes here, and I, I want to bring it up because I know that Nick probably was serious, you know, took a hard look at putting him on his top 30, because I know I did too. I really did, and that's Brennan Hanafy. Um, as you mentioned, Hanafy struggled a little bit in Frederick in 2019. But you actually tweeted out an interesting article recently on our, on our account that he worked out over Zoom for most of the summer, correct? Yes, yeah, the local uh, newspaper here in town did a story that interviewed him and Justin Ramsey, got some quotes from him too, and it seemed like Justin Ramsey was still pretty high on Hanafi. They like his work ethic, uh, and that's something that's never been questioned, even down to his high school days. 
And, but the reason we talked about before, why wasn't he invited down to Florida to pitch? Uh, he was Rule 5 eligible this year. So were the Orioles hiding him? Uh, have, were the Orioles giving up on him after that down year in Frederick? Uh, but it, their reason, at least according to Ramsey's quote in the article, was that he, just, he pitched so much earlier in the summer, which I know he's been doing around here at a field down the street. So hopefully that's the case and the Orioles are still high on him. Uh, he's been sliding pretty hard on the list for a couple of years now, but you still see guys like at Fangraphs say that there's still potential maybe for a back-end starter, but his ceiling maybe now is more of this power reliever with that just massive sinker that he has. Um, so, you know, he's sliding, but guys, national writers are still somewhat high on him so I, I don't know maybe maybe he's going to be that bullpen guy he's you're definitely going to stretch him out next year and probably Aberdeen's rotation maybe Bowie's rotation but I'm interested to see what happens with him he's been working on the secondary pitches which is his weakness so we'll see but don't I'm not yeah. giving up on him until he's out of, out of uniform <laughs> I have him at 37 so I'm still relatively high on him as well um, I think bare minimum he's going to get a chance with that sinker like you said even if it's out of the bullpen like He's got a pretty high floor, in my opinion, and he's still got a chance to add to that and make it at the back end of a rotation. So, yeah, certainly not worth giving up on, but until we see results, he's he definitely slid off the top 30 for us this year. Yeah, I had him, I think, around where Bob had him, like in that about 36th or 37th. Um, there is one thing that I have been wondering for a while, and it's something we should probably look at closer to the season, but... Nick, you've mentioned that there have been a few pitchers that have struggled at Frederick, um, but then were able to turn it around at Bowie. Do you think the move of High A to Aberdeen is going to start changing things a little bit in that regard? You know, do, could we find out over time that Aberdeen is a little more pitcher friendly, or at least a little bit more neutral than Frederick was, and we don't necessarily see pitchers struggle at High A the way we have in the past? Yeah, I think one thing I was thinking about with another guy that we're going to talk about to close out the show, uh, a lot of these guys are going to move up to high A next year, but it's going to be a return to Aberdeen. Uh, so maybe they're going to feel comfortable pitching back at that ballpark again. They're going to be familiar with their surroundings. But I think moving forward, you know, you always heard that Frederick was a home run hitter's paradise down there. Um, balls really flew out of that park, and so maybe that hurts a lot of these guys. Um yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll see uh, how Aberdeen plays moving forward. But at the same time, I think that jump to high A is your first real big major test for a lot of these prospects. And it's where you start to see a lot of these guys flame out. Um, and you start to see who rises to the top. So it will be interesting to see what that jump looks like now that you're going from Delmarva to Aberdeen. I have to like picture this in my head now because I'm confused about the <laughs> levels. But, yeah, it's something interesting to think about. Watch closely. Yeah, it's, it's going to take us all a while to get used to, I think, saying high A Aberdeen uh, <laughs> rather than high A Frederick or short season A Aberdeen, but we'll, uh, we'll be fully adjusted by the time the season uh, rolls around. On Bob's list are a lot of players who are actually lower in the system, including a couple international free agents that um, I know he wanted to talk about a little bit. And, Bob, these seem like guys that we definitely should be keeping an eye on not just this year, but moving forward, because they're all younger guys. Yeah, I had, um, speaking of international settings, a couple outfielders from that first crop in 2019 is uh, Luis Gonzalez, who I think had the biggest uh, contract that they handed out bonus 
Ermer's $500,000, and I had him as my 34th ranked prospect. And then another guy a little bit further down on my list at 41 was Steven Acevedo, who kind of came out of nowhere, but he's just a big kid. At 16, when he played in the DSL, he was like, I think he's like six, mid six feet, uh, six feet five, something like that. Big kid, plenty of potential to grow into that frame. And he actually, for his, considering his age, he put up some decent numbers. At least he got off to a hot start and then he kind of cooled off. But just a couple outfield international prospects who I'm just curious to see how they look once they actually hit stateside. And I think as young as they are and as new to this as we are, they might take off once they get there and and who knows, maybe they'll rise up into that top 30 at some point. Yeah, I went back looking for more information on these guys and found, maybe I did read this piece and I just forgot it, but I don't know. Um, it was some of reports after Instructs, and they actually had Matt Blood, Orioles' director of player development. Uh, he had some quotes about both of these guys saying, Gonzalez has ridiculous power, he just needs overall approach refinement, but he can really drive the baseball. Acevedo is a little taller, leaner, maybe a little bit better athlete with not as much power as Gonzalez, um, but they're both great player development pieces. It's exciting. It's a shot in the arm for the player development system to see players like this in camp. Uh, I think that's is about as glowing a review as you can get on these two kids. Um, you know, young international guys start making some noise and the Orioles build from there. If, if Matt Blood and other coach, I think Kevin Bradshaw was mentioned and some other Orioles, developmental guys we're talking about both of these two in high regard and if these guys can start paving the way and this is what they're saying about these two three four hundred thousand dollar signings like what are Basalo and Hernandez going to look like when they get into camp um but yeah but these two guys very young a lot of promise uh and again I think you probably because they are instructs we may even see them at whatever rookie ball is (laughs) actually I've already (laughs) there you go um you probably do see them at uh, maybe the Gulf Coast League to start off with, but maybe you know, because Gonzalez is so young, or Acevedo is a real young one, he might stay in the Dominican, but these guys are probably going to see stateside pretty soon. I think any time you can have players that young with that much raw athleticism in your system, it's a good thing. But then the fact that there are international players who were signed, you know, kind of in that two to $400,000 range, which I think are really the type of prospects the Orioles need to consistently sign in order to really build that pipeline. Um, I go back to when I covered the Washington Nationals. Um, As some people might remember after the Smiling Gonzalez scandal, uh, the Nationals were kind of down on the international market for a while, but then leading up to Anderson Franco and then ultimately the very successful signing that was Juan Soto, there were a bunch of smaller under-the-radar signings of guys who turned out to be pretty good players like Ronaldo Lopez, Pedro Severino, um, Adrian Sanchez, who's gotten a little bit of major league time, Sandy Leone. So any when you're adding depth to the system and you have that much raw athleticism like these guys have, I think it's a good thing. So whenever it is that Acevedo and Gonzalez do uh, reach the states, and as Nick said, it's probably going to be in the ZCL before anywhere else, I'm going to be really excited to watch them. And I think that they're definitely players that should be on people's radar just because there's so much athleticism there and the fact that these are hopefully the first part of the first wave of the Orioles having success in Latin American countries um, is really significant. Yeah. I would, overall, speaking of just the international market, I was listening the other day, I think it was one of the MLB pipeline podcasts maybe, 
uh, I'm sorry, I don't remember exactly where I heard this from, uh, but they were talking about how uh, teams, when they get down to the, into the Dominican, uh, it was MLB Pipeline, um, and they were talking about when you go to these Dominican showcases, uh, and they say, all right, are all the teams here? And every, you say, well, every team but one, and everyone knew who that one team was. It was the <laughs> Orioles that weren't there. Uh, and how uh, walking around these those complexes, you didn't see a lot of black and orange. You didn't see Orioles guys at all at these camps. And now there are a lot of these guys at camp. Michael Ice himself was down there. So we're growing. It's, it's happening. <laughs> it's real. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So... Bob, there was one other name on your list that, who was actually in consideration for us for the top 30 last year, and that was Adam Stauffer, who pitched well in 2019, but I feel like has not really gotten a lot of attention just because of the canceled season. He was one of those guys that seemed to be forgotten about when the 2020 minor league season was canceled, but where did you end up having him on your list? I had him just behind Hanafi at 38 on my list. And I think he's a guy with some helium here because I saw him in person at Aberdeen as a starter, and I was really impressed with the way he looked. He's got a smooth delivery. The ball kind of explodes out of his hand. But as a starter, I think he's a decent prospect. But then he went to Del Marva and worked out of their bullpen towards the end of that season, and he was kind of dominant. Uh, looked really, really good. I think he was really ramping up that fastball and that kind of raised his ceiling for me uh, not ceiling floor I should say just that there is like the Blaine Knights we think and Ofelki Peraltas and such uh there's that that uh that backup plan as a reliever power arm that could really shoot up the system really quick but I still have hope for him as a starter I really like his stuff so he's a big tall guy good presence on the mound at six seven, that's extremely tall. Um, and looking at his numbers, yeah, sixty strikeouts and forty four innings across two levels, only allowed one home run. Uh, fantastic numbers at the lower levels of the minors, and he's young. He just turned twenty two when, when I looked him up, like two weeks ago. He just turned twenty two, so still a pretty young arm. Uh, that and one of those guys that he might end up back in Aberdeen to start the year. So there's that comfort level there, and getting back on the mound probably won't be a problem for him. And I think. Yeah, I mean, of course you want to see him uh, continue to stretch out a little bit as a starter. But when you're 6'7", you can throw a fastball in the mid-90s and a big curveball that he has. It, maybe you stick him in the bullpen, and I think maybe he shoots up uh, pretty quickly through the system. But see what he does in high A. There's the wall. Maybe he'll be one of those first case studies for us uh, that switched to high A, and, but high A being Aberdeen now. Yeah, he's definitely one of those pitchers that I'm really going to be excited to see get back on the mound next year because – the numbers between Aberdeen and Delmarva were really good. 44 innings strikes out 60 batters uh, while walking uh, 19. He struggled with his command a little bit more when he moved up to Delmarva, but had been much sharper in Aberdeen. So I have hope that with a larger sample size, that kind of evens itself out a little bit. But wherever Stauffer ends up, whether he goes back to Delmarva for a little bit or he goes back to Aberdeen, which might be the better move because, as Nick said, the familiarity factor. Uh, definitely a name you're going to want to watch, and someone who has fallen off the radar, but again, it's not his fault between the canceled season and some of the other prospects that have been brought into the system. We're just not hearing Stauffer's name as much, so that doesn't mean that he's n not uh, nonetheless intriguing going into next year. For sure. There's a lot of these guys at the bottom of the or the you know low a high a 
that we haven't really seen yet. So it's really going to be exciting. So I went back and confirmed this. We actually had Stauffer 30th on our list uh, last year uh, before the 2020 season. And I'll read what Nick wrote in the report. Um, a six-seven righty who opened a lot of eyes last season while splitting his time between Aberdeen and Delmarva, Stauffer brings a four-seamer changeup and 12-6 curveball to the table. In 44 total innings last year, Stauffer posted a 102 ERA, a 143 average against, and a .93 whip while allowing just one home run and piling up 60 strikeouts. He's a relief prospect who will continue to rise with some added velocity and the ability to miss bats against more advanced competition. I know that there's a lot of questions about that just because he did miss 2020, and we don't know how this layoff is going to affect pitchers next year. But, Nick, do you think that report still holds up going into this year? Yeah, I think we can. that's one of those where you can keep uh, since there was no, no season last year, and he'd, we didn't see him at all get any reports on him. Um, yeah, he's just a really exciting guy. Like you mentioned, there's so many names in the lower levels of the minors that I don't think we've talked about a single pitcher from the 2019 draft class like ever on the show. Uh, and there are a lot of them, and I'll have to bring up their numbers. I, I've put them out before, but the 2019 draft class numbers in their first year, small sample sizes, yada, yada, Gulf Coast League, I, I get it, but they were unbelievable numbers combined as a class. We didn't even talk about any of those guys. Um, so it'll be interesting to see those along with guys like Stoffer and what this year does to them. Uh, now I'm anxious and hope they hold up. So um, before we sign off, I am going to tease um, next week's show. We're going to be joined by a special guest in Connor Newcomb, the host of Locked On Orioles podcast. Connor has been kind enough to have all three of us on his show um, at various points over the last year, and we're going to excited to have him on for the first time next week. Uh, we're still sorting out exactly what we're going to talk about, but expect uh, a preview of spring training with a little bit of a focus uh, on some prospects, obviously, but then also on the Major League roster. So we're really looking forward to having Connor on um, and getting his insights. And for info on that, uh, continue to follow us on Twitter, at BSL on the Birds. We'll have more information about that show coming up over the next week or so along with uh, a lot of other content related to the Orioles, the minor leagues, and prospects, in addition to Baltimore Sports and Life stories. Um, to check out Baltimore Sports and Life, visit BaltimoreSportsAndLife.com. You can see or covers of the Orioles, Terps, and Ravens, and be sure to hop on the message board while you're there to join in the discussion with uh, writers and other fans. So uh, before we sign off, I'll get into final thoughts for the week, and I'll start with you, Bob. Um, I'll just say, Anthony Santander, we hardly knew ye. It sounds like he is pretty much in the mix to be traded. He's the next guy, arbitration eligible. Uh, heard the Miami Marlins are very interested. The Atlanta Braves are apparently interested in Trey Mancini, and I say, here's Santander instead. So, you know, this could be the last week that Anthony Santander is an Oriole. So, appreciate your time. If it is the Marlins, though, that, that concerns me because I believe that would be like the first big, air quotes there, big trade of the Kim Ang era. And if she beats out uh, Michael Elias in that first big trade, um, <laughs> we're going to start the fire Michael Elias campaign. No, but um, <laughs> yeah, I think just final thoughts. The list was great. Uh, the next guys that we talked about today are great. And we can still go through here and probably do another show if we wanted to. I mean, 
Other names that I had written down, guys like Zach Watson, not on our top 30. We didn't mention today, outfielder, Toolsy outfielder. Joey Ortiz, uh, Maverick Hanley, uh, Toby Welk was a phenom last year, coming out of D3. Um, so many names. JC Encarnacion, Elio Prado, uh, another international guy that we got, Andrew Kashner deal that a lot of outlets are really high on. So much depth in the system, and it's going to be fun, and we are close. Apparently the truck's left for spring training tonight, so baseball is very, very, very close. Yeah, and as spring training approaches, be sure to continue listening to us on uh, At The Verge and check out the other shows on the Baltimore Sports and Life Radio Network as well. Uh, For Bob Phelan and Nick Stevens, this is Zach Spedden, and thank you for listening to On The Verge. At Granger, we're for the ones who specialize in saving the day and for the ones who've mastered the art of keeping business moving. We offer industrial-grade supplies for every industry with same-day pickup and next-day delivery on most orders, all backed by real people ready to help so you can get the right answers and products right when you need them. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Celebrate the holidays at an Arizona state park. Whether it's a cool weather hike through the low desert, playing in the snow in the high country, or packing up the family in the RV and spending Christmas in the parks, just don't forget the presents. Arizona State Parks have something for everyone this holiday season. Find an Arizona State Park near you by visiting azstateparks.com. And happy holidays from Arizona State Parks and Trails.